847 is 366 and 7. Hello and welcome to Escort to Settle, a podcast about movie and TV music. I'm your host, Brian McVicker. Each episode, I focus on music composed for film and television, whether through analyzing a specific score, taking a deep dive into a particular composer's work, or by way of interviews with guests, both those in the industry and also fellow fans. In this episode, I plan to take a deep dive into the music from a specific film franchise, uh, and I'm opening first with a question. How does this... An excerpt from the famous 1936 concert work, Peter and the Wolf, by Russian composer Sergei Prokofiev. Thematically relate to this. Well, it might end up as a surprise for some of the listeners, but the answer will reveal itself as I explore the music from all four films comprising the popular buddy cop slash action series Lethal Weapon, beginning with the original, released in 1987, through the fourth and final installment, released in 1998. All four were directed by Richard Donner and starring Mel Gibson and Danny Glover, with music by Michael Kamen, Eric Clapton, and David Sanborn. Lethal Weapon was produced during the peak time in the 1980s when action movies pretty much ruled the box office, often showcasing very muscular stars such as Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone. However, the leads in Lethal Weapon were a bit more down to earth. And this was notable in the form uh, first of the older, world-weary cop Roger Murtaugh, as played by Danny Glover, and his partner, Secondly, the manic, unstable Martin Riggs, as portrayed by Mel Gibson. The series both mirrored and transcended the other action spectaculars spanning two decades, the 80s and the 90s, mirroring via some brutal, gritty fight choreography and escalating destruction, uh, while transcending it mainly by its strong, relatable characters and how their evolving interrelationships pretty much powered these movies more so than the plots. In structuring this episode, I wanted to examine the Lethal Weapon scores both in context of this genre overall and then where it diverges from the expected. Lethal Weapon descends from the long tradition of cop and detective movie thrillers, which itself has roots in film noir. For an insightful examination of this cinematic lineage, I highly recommend the book Actions Speak Louder, written by Eric Lichtenfeld, In terms of music, these detective and cop procedurals have often leaned on modern musical forms of the time, from strident, discordant orchestral scores by composers Bernard Herrmann and Miklos Rocha in the 1950s, to smoky jazz and blues tones in the 1960s, funk in the 1970s, and then on to synth pop in the 80s. And yet there are shared aspects across all these decades and styles, 
For my first example, this being of the strident discordant orchestral variety, here is Bernard Herrmann's main title for the 1951 film noir On Dangerous Ground, starring Robert Ryan as a hardened city cop who pursues a murderer into the cold countryside. So again, this is Bernard Herrmann's main title for the film On Dangerous Ground from Bernard Herrmann's main title uh, for the 1951 film On Dangerous Ground, and was my one of my examples of the dissonant orchestral scores uh, for the genre of the 1950s. Now, by the 1960s, music for the crime and detective thriller genre became tinged by the current jazz and blues sound, and often featured a lonely, downtrodden solo trumpet or saxophone, uh, featured such as in my next example, Jerry Goldsmith's score for the 1968 film The Detective. Now, this was a movie starring Frank Sinatra as a cynical, hardened New York policeman uncovering corruption in the big city. Here is the main title from that score, and you'll hear that it's imbued with all those qualities I noted, the jazzy blues element and the solo trumpet, plus sitar, strings, and several saxophones. So again, this is from Jerry Goldsmith's score for 1968's The Detective. Thank you. 
That was the main title from Jerry Goldsmith's score for 1968's The Detective, an example of how music for films of this genre were changing in that uh, in that decade. Now, as the genre continued into the 70s, those elements of jazz and blues remained, but adopted the prevalent R&B and funk influences, um, something which can be found here in the theme for the original Dirty Harry from 1971, as composed by Lalo Schifrin. The film stars Clint Eastwood as the titular, cynical, hardened, and grumpy police detective in what also evolved into a long-running franchise for the genre. This specific track is called Dirty Harry's Creed, uh, which adds in tablas and a really active bass line. So again, this is Schifrin's, Lalo Schifrin's music from Dirty Harry from 1971. That was Dirty Harry's Creed, composed by Lalo Schifrin from the film Dirty Harry, an example of how the genre adopted music trends in the 1970s. As the decade continued, the genre further explored the gritty underbelly of big city crime with music following suit. Don Ellis's experimental, dissonant, and rough-hewn scores for both 1971's The French Connection and its sequel in 1975 are additional examples Gene Hackman headlined both films as cynical, grumpy detective Popeye Doyle. Are you sensing a pattern here as far as the character traits? Uh, Anyway, Don Ellis was a famous avant-garde jazz artist of the period, and his sound was perfect for the genre at this time. Here's the track Subway from The French Connection, composed by Don Ellis.
That was an excerpt from the track Subway from The French Connection, as composed by Don Ellis. Now, as we shift into the 1980s, there was still a jazz and blues influence on the scores for the crime thrillers, but updated as electronics entered the fray. Synths, sequencers, and drum machines joined the band. An early example of this type of what we can call fusion jazz is heard in James Horner's score for 48 Hours from 1982, starring Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte. In this case, Nolte playing the hardened cop here, and Eddie Murphy as a uh, paroled criminal uh, who's been assigned as his partner. Here, Horner applies saxophones, steel drums, a drum kit, low brass, bass guitar, and synths to craft a moody yet propulsive score. So here is the main title cue composed by James Horner for the film 48 Hours from 1982. What I find threaded throughout these varied examples and continuing to lethal weapon is a downtrodden quality, a sense that even as our protagonists, our heroes, or in some cases, let's say, anti-heroes, defeat the villains, there is never a feeling that they've risen above his level, that they remain mired in the same grit and disillusionment which produce the evil. There's rarely a sense of triumph that emerges musically in this genre, which I think is interesting and speaks volumes as each movie presents an exaggerated version of reality. There are exceptions, of course, some that break from this mold and achieve a lighter feel within the violent cop thriller, one such example being Harold Faltermeyer's perky, trendy, chart-topping music for Beverly Hills Cop from 1984, starring Eddie Murphy as Detroit cop Axel Foley, who's in town on an investigation. I probably don't have to remind anyone listening now who is of a certain age what the Axel F theme sounds like, 
With its catchy pop synth grooves and drum machines, you could almost call this track the sound of the 1980s. was Harold Faltermeyer's theme Axel F for 1984's Beverly Hills Cop, an example of how scores for the genre were still adopting modern musical uh, idioms. And so that brings me up to Lethal Weapon, 1987. Musically, the Lethal Weapon series pays homage to many of these genre trends that I've noted while also branching out both melodically and tonally. The primary composer on all four films uh, was Michael Kamen, uh, who, to his own surprise, became an A-lister for action movies after this, often them being Joel Silver productions, and gained fame thanks to popular projects such as Die Hard in 1988, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves in 1991, and Mr. Holland's Opus in 1995. Kamen was an immensely talented man who wore his heart on his sleeve, both in person and in his music, and passed away far too soon in 2003. Previously, I provided some background on Michael Kamen in an episode of the show that focused on his score for the 1988 fantasy extravaganza, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, one of my very favorites. But just for a quick recap, Kamen received training at uh, the Juilliard School of Music in New York, studying the oboe. Then in the 1970s, I wrote music for the ballet, before migrating over to the world of pop and rock as an arranger, specifically working with Pink Floyd and Queen. The fusion of these two seemingly disparate styles, a rock and classical, remained a focus and a fascination for Kamen throughout his life. Additionally, the music for the Lethal Weapon series showcases the esteemed talents of two incredible soloists, David Sanborn on saxophone and Eric Clapton on guitar, acoustic and electric. Their instrumental contributions are integral to these movies, as the colorful rock and blues presence blended with Kamen's classically-minded orchestrations and add dramatic weight and imbue the films with a genuine emotion and intensity, helping them stand apart from other films in the genre. Remember at the top of the episode when I compared the famous concert work Peter and the Wolf by Russian composer Sergei Prokofiev to Lethal Weapon? Well, here's where I hope to pay that off. What's wonderful about that concert work is not just that each character, Peter, the bird, the duck, 
the wolf, etc., has their own theme, their own melody or motif, but that there is the application of a specific instrument to a character. For example, the flute is assigned to the bird, the oboe to the duck, French horns to the wolf. And so on, so that when you hear their theme, it's not just the notes you're following, but you get a specific sound, an auditory representation of each character that allows for very colorful combinations within the orchestra. Mirroring this in Lethal Weapon, what we hear is that the saxophone is specifically applied to the character of Roger Murtaugh. while the guitar is assigned to Martin Riggs. And this allows these instruments to collaborate or clash musically in a cue while the characters on screen interact, which then weds the score much more closely than what is normal for the genre. Or you might even have the instrument appear when the character isn't on screen, but it gives you the sense, it gives you the, the essence of that character. Now, in terms of choices of each instrument, you could reason that symbolically the saxophone is most often associated with jazz and blues. And this is an older musical style that ties with Roger Murtaugh being the elder detective. While the electric guitar is associated with rock, uh, the younger rebellious form of music, thus befitting the younger unpredictable character of Martin Riggs. In addition, Riggs's theme is also performed at times by the acoustic guitar, tempering his character and painting his emotional pain in an effective but not saccharine manner.
both Rogers and Riggs' theme share a descending structure in their melodic line and have that downtrodden, bluesy quality common to music for the detective thriller genre, which we've heard. They're both feeling defeated by life at the moment, one by age and the other by trauma. Throughout the rest of the movie, there are wonderful variations on each theme, individually and in duets, Sanborn's sax and Clapton's guitar colorfully conversing with each other, such as in the cue, The Jumper. Now, while Lethal Weapon actually opens with the Christmas tune Jingle Bell Rock, Cayman's first cue, called Amanda, emerges from the song by the use of sleigh bells as a transition, and also introduces the bad guy theme, the villain theme, uh, which is a descending line on these icy, indifferent strings. This theme ends up recurring in all the subsequent scores for the series, so one might surmise that Cayman either treated all the bad guys as interchangeable threats, or this was more of an all-purpose danger-slash-suspense motif. 
Continuing on the orchestral side of the score and following that icy suspense theme on strings, Michael Kamen later introduces his kinetic, brassy action licks along with a six-note motif that emerges as an all-purpose action motif in the series. So here is that first burst of action in the Lethal Weapon score in the cue called Coke Deal. Um, now, after the um, initial burst of action, listen for the six-note motif um, performed on the harp. Interestingly, that same six-note motif, which normally appears in action sequences, shows up in the cue called Suicide early in the movie as Riggs is considering ending his own life. And I wonder if maybe Kamen intended this to be another kind of all-purpose Jeopardy motif, not particularly something just for action sequences. This motif then receives its most dynamic, propulsive rendition in the uh, Hollywood Boulevard chase sequence late in the movie. Cue is called We're Leaving. And this follows Riggs and Roger escaping the villain's club on Hollywood Boulevard. This fantastically syncopated action cue returns in the subsequent sequel scores, continuing its presence as sort of an all-purpose chase motif.
What I think is fascinating to consider is that within the broader context of scoring for this genre, the manic, fevered, and strident tone of this piece harkens back to the to similar qualities that we heard in Bernard Herrmann's music for On Dangerous Ground from 1951. This is most likely due to Cayman's overall compositional style, which can have a broad, sweeping symphonic sheen, but I think it connects the Lethal Weapon scores to more of the musical tenets of the genre. As a reminder, here's an example of Herman's music for On Dangerous Ground from 1951, blending into uh, Cayman's Hollywood Boulevard chase cue from Lethal Weapon. There is another motif from the first Lethal Weapon, uh, which is then peppered throughout the next three scores. And this is an alarming staccato brass fanfare, which is often heard in conjunction with that descending icy string uh, theme, uh, villain theme that we heard earlier. Uh, this this brass fanfare opens the lengthiest cue in the Lethal Weapon score uh, at almost nine minutes. It's a cue called The Desert, accompanying the sequence uh, when Roger Murtaugh and Martin Riggs are trying to rescue Roger's oldest daughter from the bad guys. So um, this is a bit of the cue The Desert, uh, just so you can get an example of that uh, staccato brass fanfare that becomes a recurring motif. So this arresting fanfare, as I mentioned, shows up everywhere in the sequel scores, 
often highlighting the most extreme moments within an action or chase sequence, uh, maybe sort of functioning as sort of a musical bridge to the next breathless accompaniment of uh, orchestra, sax, and guitar. Michael Kamen's score for Lethal Weapon uh, wraps up with a clattering percussive piece underscoring a savage fight between Riggs and the villain's primary henchman, Mr. Joshua, uh, portrayed by the coolly psychotic Gary Busey. Busey's character is finally offed to the strains of the icy cold descending villain theme that opened the movie. All before the score as a whole closes uh, with a soulful uh, contemplative rendition of Riggs theme on guitar, uh, all sort of couched in a bed of sensitive strings. As the sequels followed along after the original in 1989, 1992, and 1998, respectively, this musical template was adhered to uh, in overall approach, um, and then expanded on with new themes for each installment, uh, for new characters um, and situations, and then variations on the themes from what preceded it uh, from the original Lethal Weapon. By the time we reached Lethal Weapon 4 in 1998, Cayman, Clapton, and Sanborn are juggling and referencing a deep catalog of themes and motifs for the characters, for villains, for scenarios, in the best tradition of uh, Richard Wagner's operatic light motifs, just simply set in an urban action spectacle. For example, Lethal Weapon 2 introduces Joe Pesci as lovable swindler Leo Getz, whom Merton and Riggs have to protect throughout the movie. In continuing with the Peter and the Wolf model that I mentioned, Michael Kamen interpreted and somewhat mimicked Pesci's own high-pitched nasal tone of voice into a muted trumpet uh, to express his theme, almost sounding like the buzzing fly that you can't swat away. Here is the introduction of that theme uh, for Leo Getz, alongside Roger's theme on sax, and Michael Kamen's own beloved Kurzweil keyboard sort of honking underneath. This is a cue uh, from Lethal Weapon 2 uh, called You're Black, I'm Mad.
The other new facet presented in Lethal Weapon 2 is more of an instrumental color than any sort of developed theme. And this will be the use of base marimba logs to identify the film's villains who are visiting the United States from South Africa. What's great about this color is that when it's heard in the score, it can hint at their the villain's presence, even if they're not on screen. Uh, it's sort of like how John Williams' shark theme in Jaws can strike fear uh, in the viewer, even when you don't see the beast. Uh, you'll hear these bass marimba logs in this cue here uh, called Peter Shoots Hans. What's intriguing about the application of this instrument to the villains is that it seems to represent some sort of indigenous sound for South Africa, but the bass marimba log isn't really native to the region. It's just very clever how Cayman can musically paint this picture in the mind of the viewer. You'll hear them again a bit later and throughout the entire movie, really. Um, but here, uh, these logs are set against the icy descending villain string theme from the first Lethal Weapon. Uh, in this cue called Meeting Rudd from Lethal Weapon 2. One of my favorite moments from this uh, second score in the series, um, which it's a score that actually has an incredible amount of memorable moments, uh, is found in the cue called Sneaking into the Embassy, in which these bass marimba logs set a rhythm uh, against a new theme um, heard on Clapton's cocky electric guitar, and then this theme is echoed by David Sanborn's saxophone, kind of expressing musically Riggs and Roger sort of being in sync during this sequence. So this is the cue sneaking into the embassy from Lethal Weapon 2.
On the orchestral side of the street, there are several new action and danger motifs introduced by Cayman in this score, one of which is heard barely (laughs) during the opening car chase and ended up mostly being dropped from that sequence. But most notably, another new theme dominates the last third of the picture, that being a determined driving figure propelled by an insistent snare drum pattern. This heralds both a helicopter attack on uh, Riggs's trailer home and the destruction of the villain's cliffside set stilt house. Here is this new theme as heard in the queue, Stilt House Falls. the cue stilt house falls from lethal weapon 2 one of the new themes that uh, michael came and introduced into that score in terms of the established themes uh for roger and riggs uh and their development in this first sequel there are standout moments for each both individually and also in duets uh while riggs theme mostly dominates uh receives a surprising rendition on piano during a tragic scene late in the film in addition the score wraps up with his theme as in the first lethal weapon score following another savage hand-to-hand combat scene between he and the primary henchman in the score itself as roger cradles the injured martin riggs we actually hear bob dylan's classic song knocking on heaven's door as sung by eric clapton himself the music commenting directly on what riggs is experiencing at the moment So I want you to listen for that here in this cue from Lethal Weapon 2, uh, Knocking on Heaven's Door. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Feel like I'm knocking on heaven's door. 
with the appearance of Clapton uh, performing Knocking on Heaven's Door within the score, this leads me to mention how the inclusion of Eric Clapton and David Sanborn as soloists helped to provide a more seamless transition into pop and rock songs that are used in the series. At least more seamless than other movies of the period that would try to shoehorn in songs just for bigger record sales. For Lethal Weapon 2, the original album produced in 1989 focused heavily on the songs, such as Cheer Down by George Harrison and Tom Petty and Still Cruisin' by the Beach Boys, along with jam session tracks that were based on cues from the film's score, uh, such as for Leo's theme. Now, I've always liked the Cheer Down song played over the film's end credits, although I honestly don't know what it means to cheer down. Uh, but here's a little bit of that song, Cheer Down, by George Harrison. My reach seemed to have exceeded my grasp with this episode, as I thought I'd be able to include discussion on all four Lethal Weapon movies, plus the trip through the history of music for the genre, all in one. But I noted this was running a bit long, so I've decided to split it up. I'll wrap up Lethal Weapon 3 and 4 in the next episode, where I could talk about songs by Sting and Elton John, new themes for uh, characters played by Chris Rock and Jet Li, and how so much of the score for Lethal Weapon 3 is really built from cues from Lethal Weapon 2. I hope you've enjoyed this topic so far, and we'll return for the exciting conclusion. Music in this episode is from the following films. On Dangerous Ground, composed by Bernard Herrmann. The Detective, composed by Jerry Goldsmith. Dirty Harry, by Lalo Schifrin. The French Connection, by Don Ellis. 48 Hours, by James Horner. Beverly Hills Cop by Harold Faltermeyer, Lethal Weapon 1 and 2 by Michael Kamen, Eric Clapton, and David Sanborn, plus the song Cheer Down by George Harrison and Tom Petty, wrapping up this episode in the same fashion it wraps up Lethal Weapon 2. 
If you'd like to send any comments or questions, you can email the show at a score to settle podcast at gmail.com. Find the blog at a score to settle.blogspot.com. On Facebook at facebook.com slash a score to settle. And on Twitter at score to settle pod. That's score number two settle pod. If you listen to the show by way of iTunes, feel free to leave a rating and a review. That's always much appreciated. And the show is also available to listen to on Spotify. Thanks again for listening. 